Gentlemen, all I'm asking you to do now is to witness a demonstration of the possibility of movement within the fourth dimension. Kickoff episode 277 with the song Wrong Planet. It's from the album Here Come the Delstroyers. The band is the Delstroyers. You can find them at thedelstroyers.bandcamp.com where you can buy the EP or you can find them on Facebook where they will be sure to announce upcoming shows and projects. They gave us permission to play their music here on the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I am your writer, producer, and host, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to Monster Kid Radio. I was unfortunately not able to attend Monster Bash this year, but a lot of my friends did, and since a lot of my friends happen to be podcasters, they have their own recording equipment. And friend of the show, Rod Barnett from the Nashicast, was one of those podcaster friends of mine who was attending Monster Bash. Another friend of the show, Frank J. Delostrito was giving a presentation called Darwin Goes Hollywood, Evolution in Movie Horror. Well, Rod and Frank got together and recorded the presentation just for you. They actually got together after Frank did the presentation to the conference room, and he privately gave the presentation to Rod to record. Rod has then sent, sent me the recording. I made a few tweaks here and there and dropped some clips from some trailers into the mix, and... Uh, I'm pretty happy with how it turned out. So I'm going to say it again at the end of the show, but I want to say it now. Thank you, Rod, and thank you, Frank, for making this happen and for giving us something to talk about here on Monster Kid Radio, even though I wasn't able to go to Monster Bash this year. That's what's going to make up the bulk of this episode, and we're going to get to that right after this. When worlds collide. Written in the stars is a message of doom for this, our world. And now in the most shattering experience the screen has ever given you, Paramount tells what could happen within your lifetime when worlds collide. An astronomer checks and double-checks his horrifying discovery. A distant star racing through space toward an inevitable collision with this planet. The United Nations meet in emergency session. All conflicts pale before this threat from another world. If you wait until the danger is visible to the naked eye, it will be too late to escape. High on a mountaintop, an army of scientists work desperately to build this giant rocket, this modern Noah's Ark, to carry a few picked survivors of our doomed civilization to a new life on another world, reaching the heights of self-sacrifice, the depths of the animal lust for survival as they fight to be among the few who can be saved. Let's take the ship away from them! Come on! Fighting among themselves fighting against time, as doomsday is upon them. I think all you scientists are crackpots. Nothing is going to happen. When worlds collide, you'll see the most amazing, awe-inspiring scenes ever put on film. The forces of nature unleashed in all their terrifying force. Tremendous tidal waves smashing New York City. The molten fires from the bowels of the earth gushing out to consume our world. everyone, I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And we are your hosts for NashyCast, the podcast about the films of Paul Nashy. We, for over five years, have brought you the joys of Spanish cinema, filtered through our brains to you. Yes, now what is it that qualifies two southern boys to talk about films that came out of Spain and I can't think of a single thing. There's nothing that qualifies. Nothing. nothing. Except that we just love, love them, love them, love them. We love them. Nashi we, Cast yeah. covers the films of Paul Nashi and any other Spanish horror film that we can pretend we know something about. <laughs> yes. If you love beautiful women wearing incredibly short miniskirts in subarctic temperatures <laughs> chased by werewolves in leisure suits. If you love 
werewolves, vampires, unidentifiable beasts, or crazy people driving women around and talking like a maniac to <laughs> Yes, flying cats, beheadings with axes. <laughs> Blood that looks Sham- like melted crayons. Shambling zombies, yeah. Some of the films that we've covered in the past are Mark of the Werewolf. How of the Devil. Vengeance of the Zombies. Horror Rises from the Tomb. Tombs of the Blind Dead. Vampire's Night Orgy. Oh, yes. Join us on this journey through the golden age of Spanish horror where Paul Nashi, Leon Klamowski, Jess Franco, Amando Diasorio take us through a filter Espanol. Join us for the Nashi cast. Hello, I'm Frank Delastrito. The topic of the hour is Darwin Goes Hollywood. Evolution and Movie Horror. And I'll begin with a personal story. I grew up in the 1950s and 60s. Darwin and evolution might have been mentioned in school. Probably not. They certainly were not taught. It was not mentioned on television. We had no public television. We had no science channel. We had no David Attenborough documentaries. Yet, when I graduated high school in 1968, my basic understanding of the theory of evolution is exactly what it is now. And I learned that from watching horror movies and science fiction movies. So the theme of my talk is how popular culture undermined the more formal culture to teach us something we really weren't supposed to be learning. Or if I may paraphrase the mathematician from Jurassic Park, Ian Malcolm, pop horror will not be contained, pop horror breaks free, pop horror will find a way. The theory of evolution is a lot older than most people know, but it really got its scientific structure from Charles Darwin and the publication in 1859 of The Origin of the Species. I'm not here to talk about the science of it today, but how it affected popular culture from the very outset. And one of its first effects was on our language. Phrases which Darwin might have used or might have popularized or might have been around a long time, like tree of life, natural selection, the descent of man, survival of the fittest, and most of all, the missing link crept into the common usage, the common vernacular. And who was that missing link? Well, for many young people, that missing link looked an awful lot like Charles Darwin because he was endlessly characterized and satirized in it in magazines where they used his face to make an ape man. And I can tell you from personal experience, uh, children might see pictures like this, any nuance or satire or higher meeting is lost in them. They see the image and they say, that's cool. And those children eventually grow up. Jump ahead a little. 1887. One of those children is now 21-year-old H.G. Wells, who is starting his career as a writer. And he does not start as a novelist. He starts as a author of scientific essays. He writes on many topics. He writes on astronomy. He writes on atomic theory. But he writes mainly on biology. And a lot of his articles have a evolutionary bent to them. Some of the titles are Human Evolution and Artificial Process, Byproducts of Evolution, On Extinction, The Rate of Change of Species, The Extinction of Man, Zoological Regression, and many more. He spends quite a few years as a writer. Jump ahead again, another 10 years, and H.G. Wells is now about 30, and he's starting to publish novels. His first one, The Time Machine, and a slightly later one, Island of Dr. Moreau, both have an evolutionary bent to them. The Time Machine is a big hit. It establishes him as a writer. The Island of Dr. Moreau, less so. It gets a lot of harsh reviews, including from Wells' uh, fellow scientists. He considers himself a member in good standing of the scientific community, and he doesn't really like the reviews he's getting. One of them, my favorite one, is from uh, the Saturday Review of Literature in 1896, when a scientist writes his review and says, a multitude of experiments show that animal hybrids cannot be produced. Attempts to combine living material from different creatures fail. If you read this closely, it says one thing. There are some real Dr. Moreau's out there. They just haven't succeeded yet. <laughs> yeah, let's jump on our time machine again and go ahead to 1915. The cinema is now with us. And a man named Willis O'Brien is developing the art and science of stop-motion animation. He's making short films 
with his uh, moving dinosaurs and moving animations, which will culminate in King Kong in 1933. One of his first films in 1915 is The Dinosaur and the Missing Link. And here's a picture of the missing link, as envisioned by O'Brien. There's no evolution in this film. This was just a catchy phrase that he could use, and he had no statement to make other than to be entertaining. And to show you how playful he could be, a year later, in 1916, he made a movie called Prehistoric Poultry, about again, about a dinosaur. And even in 1918, when his art got a bit more sophisticated... He was still making movies about uh, giant chickens. Here's Ghost of Slumber Mountain, and you'll see the famous dinosaurs, a Tyrannosaurus-type one, a Brontosaurus-type one, a Triceratops-type one, and there, is next to them all, is a giant chicken. Again, Willis may be being playful, or this may be an example of the craftsman running ahead of the scientists. This is 1918. No one is talking about the similarity between dinosaurs and birds. Two groups of people know about that similarity. One of my fellow Texans and other citizens of the Gulf Coast who regularly eat alligators and say, gee, this tastes just like chicken. <laughs> and the other group are men like O'Brien who have to build models and animate them. And they notice that the hip bones of birds are just like the hip bones of some dinosaurs. And also when they build the skeletons of dinosaurs, they've realized something that science is not telling us. Science is telling us at this time that dinosaurs are slow moving and dim-witted. But when these men build these models, they can tell that these animals were capable of quite sophisticated maneuvering and a lot of speed. And therefore, they must have had the brains to go with them. So in that sense, we, we have an example of uh, the craft being ahead of the science. Let's jump ahead again to 1925 to O'Brien's silent masterpiece, The Lost World, in which uh, adventurers go off to South America on a lost plateau, find living dinosaurs, etc., is there evolution in this movie? Not much, but maybe once there was. For one of the characters in the movie is an ape-man. Not the movie's first ape-man, but a half-man, half-ape. Unfortunately, Lost World is one of those movies that was chopped up over time. The first time I saw The Lost World in 1925, from 1925, I didn't see it in 1925, uh, the ape-man wasn't even in it. And in the most complete versions available of it today, the Ape Man pops in, he pops out. Where he comes from, we don't know. Where he goes to, we don't know. That might not always have been the case. If we look at publicity for the movie that came out in January 25, and specifically a January 1925 Photoplay magazine, there's an article called When a World Was Lost, and the Ape Man figures prominently in the article, and underneath him in the caption is... The movie is filled with dinosaurs, great apes, and all the prehistoric animals that roamed the earth before man's ascendancy. That has a Darwinian tone to it. But you won't see any of that in the final film. That's because about the time the film came out, the greatest show on earth came out. The Scopes Monkey Trial of July 1925. The Scopes Monkey Trial was in Dayton, Tennessee. Uh, some of you know my wife and I drive up every year to the bash from Texas, and one year we stopped in Dayton, Tennessee. And it is a national treasure. The original courthouse has not been changed. You can sit in the same chair that Clarence Darrow sat in. You can sit in the same chair that uh, William Jennings Bryan or John Scopes or the judge sat in. And it's not crowded because it's not an easy place to get to. And as, if you drive there, you, you'll go through your mind, how on earth did the world's media descend on this place almost a 100 years ago? It couldn't have been easy for them. So, evolution is pretty much takes a back seat because movie makers don't like controversy. There are other eight men in the silent movies. Lon Chaney played one in a movie called The Blind Bargain. There's a rather frivolous ape man in a movie called The Monkey Talks. There's a rather scary ape man in a movie called The Wizard. But none of these really deal with evolution. Evolution was kind of off the table. So it might have stayed, but in 1932, Darwin hit the big time. And he hit the big time in 1932 because the monsters hit the big time in 1931. 1931 saw Dracula, Frankenstein, Svengali, and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Dracula and Frankenstein were both made by Universal. Paramount made Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Warner Brothers made Svengali. They were always a little squeamish about horror, so they didn't really go follow it up much. But Paramount and Universal both turned to evolution for their next horror movies, and specifically Universal made Murders of Rue Morgue and made and released it in 1932, and Paramount filmed Island of Lost Souls in late 1932, released it in early 1933. And in 
the murders in the Rue Morgue, we meet the formidable Dr. Morocco. Dr. Morocco's high point of the film is when he gives the movie's first lecture on evolution. He is the movie's first evolutionist. And he does this before two posters. One is about 8x8 and hangs behind him, and off to his left is one about 3x4. The 8x8 one summarizes the whole history of life. The 3x4 one is the history of human development. We never get a good shot of these. You kind of have to pick them up in pieces. If you look at the chart behind them, it starts with singular cell growth animals and evolves into fish, into reptiles, and finally into humans. And while we're watching that in Dr. Morocco's show, he is giving his talk. And here is what he says. I'll read it. In the slime of chaos, there was a seed which rose and grew into the tree of life. Life was motion. Fins grew into wings. Crawling reptiles grew legs. There came a time when a four-legged thing walked upright. You can argue with the wording, but that is exactly the same thumbnail description of evolution today. And Miracle was giving it in 1932. Miracle goes on, unfortunately for him. My life is consecrated to a great experiment. I tell you, I shall prove your kinship with the ape. Eric's blood will shall be mixed with the blood of man. Eric is Dr. Miracle's experimental ape. Mixing with the blood of man has two meanings. One is, as Miracle does in the movie, injecting the blood of a human into Eric, or vice versa. The other meaning is sex. And as this movie was originally filmed, it was left more ambiguous for much longer as to what he really meant. That changed. <laughs> uh, the movie had a lot of censorship problems. They had to reorder the scenes. And if you watch the movie, you can see that it's a bit jumbled. Uh, the, way to tr- the way to pair the scenes together is Camille, the leading lady, uh, is a closed horse. And if you put the scenes of her in the same costume together, they were once together in the movie, but they're now apart. Dr. Morocco takes two carriage rides in the movie. In one of them, he has the ape, and in another one, he does not. But it seems to go back and forth in the movie. If you put those scenes together, with and without the ape, that's the order they were in once. I have not seen the shooting script for this movie, but my guess is it will be much more ambiguous as to what Morocco was doing. Well, the movie hit a lot of censorship problems. I can't blame that on evolution. There's the very powerful scene of the murder, torture of a prostitute, which even today carries a jolt. There's a, a murder of a, an ape. Morocco's ape goes and murders a woman. Maybe he rapes the woman. If you watch the movie closely, that's implied. And he stuffs her body up a chimney. The censors didn't like this, and they give the movie a lot of, of trouble. Not nearly the trouble they gave Paramount's Island of Lost Souls, where we meet the formidable Dr. Moreau. You're convinced that the thing on this table isn't human. Its cries are human. Do you know what it is, what I began with? No. An animal. Dr. Moreau has found a way to advance evolution, and he tells us in his work that, quote, man is the present climax of a long process of organic evolution. All animal life is tending towards the human form. Incidentally, evolution doesn't say that at all. This is Moreau's corruption of evolution to his own designs. And he goes on, I have wiped out hundreds of thousands of years of evolution from the lower animals I have made. And what he's made is his animal men, which populate the island. Again, I can't blame the censorship problems that Island of Lost Soul has on evolution. There's no shortage of sadomasochistic scenes. Moreau sends his most lustful animal man out to murder the human man and to rape the human woman. The harrowing finale where the animal men revolt and destroy Moreau is the only horror movie scene of the 1930s that got under my skin. This was truly terrifying. And worst of all, the sum censors is Moreau is declaring himself to be a god. The movie would be banned in Britain until 1958 and had a lot of trouble many places in the world, including the United States. So, not surprisingly, in 1933, the big time hits back. Evolution is basically off the screen for quite a while. You have to listen and look very closely to find evolution even mentioned in the movies in the 1930s after that. When my experiments are completed, I will show their results to the entire world. Not before. Remember this, Dr. Glendon. The werewolf instinctively seeks to kill the thing it loves best. For instance, in 1935's Werewolf of London, when Dr. Yogami meets Dr. Glendon, they're both werewolves, by the way. <laughs> Dr. 
the Yogami says evolution was in a strange mood when that creation came along. But if you cough when he's saying that, you'll not hear a mention of evolution again. To find anything on evolution in the movies, we have to go a little further down the ladder on the budgets of, of Hollywood films. In 1933, the Three Stooges starred in Three Missing Links. In 1937, Laurel and Hardy starred in a movie called Dirty Work, where they have chimney sweeps, so go down the wrong chimney, and down there is a bad scientist who reverts Hardy to his animal origins. So it might have continued, except in 1941, where animals hit the big time. You can count on one hand the movies that have were animals in them before 1941. You can count on the hand of one of Dr. Moreau's animal men. <laughs> How many movies there were with were animals before 1941? But then came the Wolfman, who created a big demand. Whoever is bitten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. Oh, don't hand me that. You're just wasting your time. The wolf bit you, didn't he? The Wolfman of 1941, Lon Chaney Jr., would be followed by other werewolves, other werecats, and, of course, they'd be were-apes. Some of the were-ape movies are Battle Lugosi plays a sympathetic scientist in The Ape Man, who transforms himself into an ape creature. I feel myself going back to the animal instinct. I lock myself in there between the I might do something terrible. An unsympathetic battle Lugosi in Return of the Ape-Man revives a frozen Neanderthal man and gives him a partial brain transplant. George Zuko was never one to let battle Lugosi get the upper hand, so he made a full brain transplant into a gorilla and the monster and the girl. And then there were Universal's three ape-girl movies, Captive Wild Woman, Jungle Woman, and The Jungle Captive. Creature of evil, running amok, blazing a trail of fear-crazed horror. From the jungle's most guarded secret comes this amazing story of a captive wild woman, torn between the mad cravings of animal blood and the longing for human love. A woman whose jungle instincts give her sinister power over man and beast. And suppose your experiment does succeed. What will you have? A human form with animal instincts. You know what the police will do to you if they catch you? No, of course you don't. They'll put you on trial. Then they'll put you in the electric chair and kill you. For my money, the best of the lot is 1942's Dr. Renault's Secret, where mad scientist George Zuko takes a jungle ape that he has captured and transforms him to J. Carol Nash. You tried to kill Dr. Forbes at the inn last night. No. Don't keep lying to me. For years I worked to change your appearance, make you talk. Get you in danger all I've done for the sake of your stupid animal jealousy. He doesn't mention evolution when he's doing it. His description of what he has done is, and I'll, I'll quote this, glandular injections, brain surgery, plastic surgery, nerve grafts, stimulating the higher functions of the cerebral cortex, not a mention of evolution. The key word here may be glandular, because if you listen closely to the movie dialogue of the 1940s, you will be surprised how frequently glands come up. For instance... When the Wolfman finally gets his examination from Dr. Edelman, Dr. Edelman blames it all on glands. There's a long quote here I won't read, but basically he's saying the glands are out of control, and that's what makes him a Wolfman. If you watch The Ape Man closely, there's a scene of a montage of newspaper headlines that explain the story. And if you freeze frame and read it, we find out that Dr. Brewster, who's Bela Lugosi's character, was a famous gland expert who has vanished without a trace. And... This was giving the movies cover. If someone said, this is, you're not supposed to be making movies about evolution. He's not an evolutionist. He's a gland expert. That's how he did it. There's neat things in movie dialogue if you listen closely. In Captive Wild Woman, uh, John Carradine's nurse decides to read him the riot act, and she's kind of mad, and, and I'll quote what she says. I've seen you gain control over the physical characteristics of men. Change the breed and sex of animals. I've listened to your dreams of creating a race of supermen. Let me read that again. Change the breed and sex of animals. Gender reassignment will be all the rage of the 1950s. This may be the first mention of it in the movies. Evolution doesn't usually get too much press in some of these movies. It gets a mention. In The Monster and the Girl, uh, George Zuko is performing his operation and says, This night's dreaming will step him up a million years in the pattern of evolution. Right after he says that, he says, The human brain, God's greatest handiwork. If any censor said, what are you talking about evolution for? They could always say, yeah, but look who he mentions right afterwards. We're covered. 
Bela Lugosi comes close to mentioning evolution in Return of the Ape Man when he says, I have advanced his mind 20,000 years in a few hours. So it might have continued, but of course, the world changed in the 1940s, and the 1950s became the decade of radiation. Everything got blamed on radiation. And I'm sure all of you know that in the early 1950s, a lot of sleeping dinosaurs got a dose of radiation and woke up and came to take it out on man. And this actually goes back to a theory of life a lot older than evolution. The original theory of life, which is somewhat biblical, is that once a species was created, it could not be destroyed. There was no such thing as extinction. And you may recall in, in H.G. Wells' essays that I listed, he mentions extinction twice. Because extinction, the very possibility of extinction, was, was somewhat somewhat in, uh, in doubt. In the 18th century, uh, men like Thomas Jefferson wrote on this topic. They believed that somewhere in the world, living versions of the fossils they were finding thrived. That theory only died when we ran out of places to look for them. And this theory comes in sharp focus in one of the movies, A Giant Behemoth. And when the rather eccentric paleontologist tells the uh, the hero, I knew these creatures were alive somewhere. No form of life ceases. He can stay under the surface for an age, and now he comes to the top. It had started casually, insignificantly, as momentous events often do. Look there. Two points off the port bow. The giant behemoth, the fire-spitting monster predicted in the Bible. Its core a mass of lethal radiation. Rising from the depths of time, its strength enormous, its gargantuan ferocity a threat to London, to the world itself. Let's go to the 1950s on a more human scale and see how evolution's doing. In, in 1951's The Neanderthal Man, a scientist changes himself into a Neanderthal Man, and before he does so, he says, Man is not of himself. He's made of everything that's gone before. He's part of every ancestor he ever had. I say that if you were injected with this, you'd revert to a primitive anthropoid, physically as well as mentally. A few years later came Munster on the campus, and another scientist is experimenting with turning himself into a Neanderthal. And he says, man, a recent species not stabilized. Man is not only capable of change, but man alone can choose the direction. Only one scientist dared investigate the incredible phenomena. Our pet dog reverted to an antediluvian wolf. Look at those teeth. That dog is a throwback. Our simple dragonfly had become a winged monster of a species extinct for millions of years. Now, before your very eyes, see a man revert to a half-human anthropoid from the dawn of creation. A monster leaving behind a trail of death and destruction. These are getting evolutionary tones to them. 1959 came a movie... Terra is a man. The motion picture that dares to unlock the secrets of the unknown. Is the man. Is he Charles? Yes, he is. You call it see a man? Terra is a man. It's kind of a low-budget island of Dr. Moreau because there's only one animal man running around. And the mad scientist Francis Lederer says it is no more unnatural than evolution. It is evolution. What is man? Where does the species begin? If he is a man, if he has a soul, I gave it to him. There's another scientist playing God. Francis Lederer's character's name in this movie is Dr. Gerard. If we go back to the 1940s, there's Dr. Renault. If we go back to the 1930s, there's Dr. Moreau. Dr. Morocco is not French, but where does he work? He works in Paris. <laughs> what was the name of Universal's ape girl, Paula Dupree? You picking up a French tone here? Actually, evolution caught on in France quicker than it did in the English-speaking world, and for many years, the only uh, museum expositions on evolutionary theory were in the Natural History Museum of Paris. And many times when, when, when evolution was shown in a negative light, it was, by the English-speaking world, it was that, it's a French decadence, it's French. You know? <laughs> okay, 1953. Real life steps in and will start to change the way these movies are looked at forever. Two things happen in 1953 that will affect us. 1953, DNA is discovered. Can't watch the evening news today without hearing DNA mentioned. Dr. Moreau never heard of it. Dr. Renault never heard of it. But it, it began to change things. It began to change people's knowledge of how things might work. Well, it might be news to somebody, but it wasn't news to one of our favorite mad doctors, Dr. Zabor of uh, Bela Lugosi meets a Brooklyn gorilla, says as much in 1952. 
I'll quote him. All living things originated in a process of evolution. A growth force tends to make genetic changes. I have found the formula that generates the growth force. When nature takes years, I can, in a matter of hours, make a complete embryonic metamorphosis. Bella Lugosi finds the perfect subject to turn a gorilla into a goop and versa visa. Let me introduce a little aside here. Bella Lugosi's co-stars in this movie were interviewed at one time. And they said how Lugosi had to rehearse so badly with his lines. His wife would come in and read his lines to him, and he'd work with her. His son would come and do it. And this was kind of taken as a suggestion that Lugosi was losing it. He was having trouble with dialogue. Well, when you look at this dialogue, and what I've read is only a part of what he had to say, say, well, I don't blame him for rehearsing that. It is not easy to say. And plus, the man that filmed this movie was named William Bodine, and his nickname was One Shot. You got one chance with him. And, and Lugosi pulls it off. The second thing that happens in 1953 is that Mount Everest is climbed. It's a big deal. There's a there's an award-winning documentary on it. It's a, it's a big box office success. The men that went up it are considered heroes. It was a team of Sherpers and Westerners that went up. But for the Western world, the face most identified with scaling Mount Everest was Edmund Hillary. So what? Well, Edmund Hillary used his new fame to get funding and interest in a topic near and dear to his heart, and that was the Yeti, the Abominable Snowman. Well, Edmund Hillary never found the Abominable Snowman, but he did unknowingly become the template for future scientists, because no more would bad scientists be in their laboratories making monsters. They would dwindle into extinction. The new scientist would be an adventurer who went forth looking for lost branches of humanity. 1954, a year after the scaling of Everest, Hollywood had never made a Yeti film. The, the abominable snowman had never been a character in a movie. But the onslaught starts in 1954 with a very low-budget movie called Snow Creature. If I'll read what's on the movie poster, it says, Millions read about the startling creature in Time, Life, and Argosy magazines. And that's true. There's a lot of publicity going on for the search for the Yetis. Again, this is a low-budget film. It's Quite frankly, it's hard to stick with. It's a bit silly in parts, but there's one line of dialogue, one exchange of dialogue in this movie that really struck me. Uh, I'll paraphrase it. They capture the snow creature. They bring him to Los Angeles. A government official is there and says, if that's human, I have to bring the Department of Immigration in. If that's an animal, I need to get the Department of Wildlife in here. <laughs> and they didn't go anywhere with that line, but it just struck me. Yeah, <laughs> there's some problems here. That was 1954. 1955 comes a movie with about the same budget, very low budget, called Man Beast. And here the Yetis are plotting. And again, I'll read the caption in the poster. Women stalked and captured for breeding Yeti monsters. And there's a quote from one of the Yetis. Not many of them can talk, but one who's uh, who is one thirty second human. That means his great great grandparents. Do I have that right? Great great parents are were Yetis, and that's when they started this. And they still can't get down into the warm temperatures. They're doing this interbreeding because they can't leave the mountains and they need the cold. But he says, "No man has ever seen us and lived. No man ever will until we are ready." The Yetis are plotting against us in this movie. Well, the Japanese were not to be outdone by the Americans. So in 1956, Japan made a movie, the title in Japanese, and I'm told that says Jujin Yuki Otoko. And it's about a man-ape living in northern Japan. As happened with a lot of, uh, not a lot, but, but several uh, Japanese movies, when they came to America, the soundtrack was stripped off, and we're just watching the visuals, which are narrated and explained to us by three scientists who are discussing this, and the movie becomes half-human. This is a mole taken from the footprint found outside the cabin door. By measuring the width, the length, and the depth of the print, their composite picture described the species as being nine feet tall and weighing around 1,800 pounds. What did Tanaka say? Well, he was convinced in his mind that the hair follicle was closer to that of man to that of any other animal known to exist. And the three scientists are headed by John Carradine, and there's Robert Carnes and Russell Thorson, and they just talk back and forth as the Japanese movie plays out. A fourth scientist comes in to do an autopsy, and that's when the, a little evolution comes into this. One of the scientists asks him, would you say that over a period of 200,000 years this species could slowly evolve into man? 
the fourth doctor played by Morris Ankrum. It might not take anything like 200,000 years. We could control the animal part of his brain, effectively treat his glands. Those glands just won't go away in these movies. Well, I should say in perhaps 10 to 15 generations. 10 to 15 generations? What is that, 250, 350 years? That's how far, that's how long it would take to get from the ape man to us. Then comes one of my favorite exchanges in all of the movies. One of the scientists asks, would he be able to differentiate between male and female? Would he have a marked preference? The fourth doctor says, why not? His anatomy would be, at maturity, be almost human. I was 12 years old when I saw this movie, and I knew exactly what they were talking about. (laughs) So you parents out there who are wondering what the effect of knowing what Donald Trump's hand size means, don't worry, the kids are getting this stuff from all over. So, what do all these movies I've been talking about have in common? Murders in the Room Morgue, Island of the Lost Souls, Dr. Renault's Secret, The Monster and the Girl, Captive Wild Women, Terrorism Man, Half-Human, Man-Beast, The Snow Preacher. What do they have in common? What they have in common is the desire of the ape-like creature for the very human woman. Beneath the surface of all these movies is bestiality. <laughs> that That is the thing that ties all together. But not in the last and I think the greatest of the Abominable Snowman movies of the 1950s, which is The Abominable Snowmans of the Himalayas, starring Peter Cushing and Forrest Tucker, who I think in this movie give their best performances. There's hardly a woman in it. On the poster, you can see a woman, but she's stuck in there. She's not on the expedition. There's barely a, barely a much of a part for her. The movie is basically men looking into what it means to be human. A small band of men on a perilous search for the man-beast of Tibet. The abominable snowman of the Himalayas. You've heard of him, haven't you? And we have good examples of the three types of men in the movie. Forrest Tucker, the American, is the man of action. Peter Cushing, the British scientist, is the man of thought. And Arnold Maul is the llama, is the man of spirit. And going back and forth in this movie, beneath the action is the struggle for their worldviews. What do they see as is, is, is life and what is man? The Sherpa warns us, I'll read you his quote, Man is near forfeiting his right to lead the world. He faces destruction by his own hand. When a ruler is near death, he should not be seeking to extend his realm, but to take thought to, to whom might with honor succeed him. Let me read you something that H.G. Wells wrote 70 years before this. Nature is, in unsuspected obscurity, equipping some now humble creature to rise and sweep Homo away into the darkness. It's the same thought. And at the end of this movie, with all the humans on the expedition dead except Peter Cushing, he comes face to face with an abominable snowman. There is no dialogue in the scene. They exchange looks, and that is as powerful a moment as you'll find in 1950s horror films. It's an excellent film, and this is an outstanding moment. Well, scientists didn't have to go to the Arctic or to the far reaches of the of the Himalayas to look for other branches of humanity. Uh, sometimes they went to the Amazon, as in Creature from the Black Lagoon. Science hunts Amazon Gilman in the most astounding expedition of our time. This is exactly as it was 150 million years ago when it was part of the Devonian era. As man continues his conquest of the unknown, daring underwater adventurers challenge the world's most treacherous waters to find the only living link with the beginning of time. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Creature from the Black Lagoon is kind of a subversive movie. It begins with a quote from the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. Then it continues, and it never tells you that this is not from the Bible, but I was eight years old when I saw this, and I thought it was. I thought they were just continuing. It says, The restless seas rise and find boundaries and are contained. Now in their warm depths, the miracle of life begins. Evolution is getting stronger with every film. If we, uh, The scientist, played by Richard Carlson in that movie, gives a little lecture. He tends to give lectures at the drop of a hat. And he says, How many thousands of ways nature tried to get out of the sea and onto the land? By studying these and other species, we add to our knowledge of how life evolved. Well, that was probably the greatest of a handful of movies from the 1950s. In The Mole People, a couple of scientists uh, stumble on an underground world where humanity has divided itself between the mole people and the rather anemic dear humans that live with them. In World Without End, some unwilling time travelers go into the future, and guess what? The humanity has divided into two branches, 
the surface-dwelling mutants and the underground-dwelling humans. And if these plots seem a little familiar, it's they are, because these are rip-offs of a very famous novel. And that brings us to 1960, when evolution again hits the big time. And it does so first with The Time Machine, 1960 film. In my years of going to Saturday matinees when I was in grammar school, I had two magic afternoons. One was Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, and one was The Time Machine. And my classmates and I really got excited by this, and why not? You had those wonderful Morlocks all over the place. You had this neat time machine. And I was particularly fascinated by the little miniature time machine that he's, uh, it's an experimental model. And so, our time traveler, played by Rob Taylor, goes into the future, and what does he find? He's, he tells us, I'll quote him, the human race divided itself. The world of Morlocks and Eloy began. Morlocks degenerated into the lowest form of life. You people who have not read the book, if you do, do not expect to find these blonde, beautiful teenagers. The Eloy are actually chimpanzees with peach fuzz hair in them. So, the book is a bit more earthy than the movie. And a few months later, 1960, came a movie called Inherit the Wind, which is a fictionalized but pretty accurate account of the Scopes Monkey Trial of 1925, with Spencer Tracy as the Clarence Darrow character and Frederick March as the uh, William Jennings Breyer character and Gene Kelly as, a, as the H.L. Mencken character. 1960, I'm 10 years old. Movies like this weren't on my radar. This movie came and went without my knowing it. It wasn't until 1967 when it came to television and it played on a Saturday night. And I can't tell you the conversations that we had at school the next day, not in class, but amongst ourselves, as to what a great movie we thought this was. And I think its popularity had nothing to do with evolution. I think it was the Bernie Sanders effect. Young people are just mesmerized by old-timers that say what's on their mind and don't give a damn who knows it. <laughs> and we, we thought that was wonderful. I was a monster kid, so I, I, I knew about the movie before it came on, only because it is the only on-screen pairing of Hollywood's two great Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde's, Spencer Tracy and Frederick March. And this movie is pro-evolution, so Spencer Tracy's Dr. Jekyll pretty much humiliates Frederick March's Mr. Hyde. I thought I would end this talk by telling you about all the great evolution-oriented movies that followed this, now that the lid was blown off of evolution. Pretty much the any taboos against mentioning it were gone. But the 1960s what just wasn't making that kind of movie. That brand of science fiction was out of, out of favor at the time, so there just really are none to report. But television often goes in where movies fear to go. And if you haven't seen it, there's a really excellent episode of The Outer Limits called The Six Finger, where David McCallum goes up and down the tree of life, changing his form by evolution, thanks to a scientist. And if you haven't seen it, it's not to be missed. It's one of the great hours of uh, science fiction television. So, folks, that's my talk, and I hope you'd enjoyed it. Again, thank you, Rod, for recording, and Frank, thank you for delivering this presentation for us here on Monster Kid Radio. It means so much to me. I think the listeners are going to dig it. What did you guys and gals think? Pretty cool? I, I thought so. Well, I thought so. So, Rod, you can find over at the NashiCast. I played his promo earlier. I want to tell you a little bit more about Frank. Now, Frank J. Delostrito has appeared on Monster Kid Radio in the past. A couple of years ago, when I did go to Monster Bash, I met him in person and we recorded a little bit. You can, you can actually hear him in episode 129 of Monster Kid Radio, where we have a recording of his presentation. I saw what I saw when I saw it. Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Well, I saw what I saw when I saw it is also the name of one of his excellent books. I highly recommend this one as well as his other books, including Vampire Over London. It's about Bela Lugosi's time in Britain. He's also the man behind the book, a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, the history and mythology of classic horror films. You can buy all of these through Amazon. I want to have Frank on the show again down the line. Maybe he and I can find a movie to talk about in the future. Facebook, I'm sure you see this. People sharing memories on Facebook, things from previous years. Well, every morning I get a handful of notifications from Facebook saying, here's a memory, here's a memory. Would you like to share that memory? This morning when I got up, I got a notification from Facebook, reminded me of a post I put on Facebook last year announcing an episode in which Scott Morris and I talked about the movie Beneath the Planet of the Apes. 
Have we been doing our Planet of the Apes coverage that long? There's no reason why we needed to drag this out. So Scott and I have been talking. We are going to get to the final film in the original Planet of the Apes. It's a quintology, the series. And he and I are also going to talk about our experiences when we go to see Planet of the Apes on the big screen July 24th. FathomEvents.com is where you're going to want to go to learn about this upcoming event. Fathom Events, I've done a number of their screenings in the past. It's pretty top-notch. I'm really looking forward to seeing Planet of the Apes on the big screen again. That's actually how I saw it the first time I saw the film, is on an IMAX screen. So this is going to be a little bit different and a whole lot of fun. Because Monster Kid Radio is crashing the theater to go see this movie. So if you're in the Portland, Oregon area, or or if you want to start hitchhiking to get here, and we got a few days left before we descend on the Century 16 Cedar Hills Theater here in Beaverton, Oregon. Showtime's at 2 o'clock. It's Sunday, July 24th. I recommend you buy your tickets in advance. I'm going to be there. It looks like a couple of other people in the Monster Kid Radio audience are going to be there. I'm going to have my portable recorder. I can't wait to meet up with everybody to see this film. And then Scott's going to go see it in his neck of the woods. And this will be a first time big screen showing for him. So I know he's excited about it as well. Wherever you go see this movie, I'd love to hear what you think. So give us a call. Drop us a line at our voicemail line, 503-479-5657. That's 503-4795-MKR. That brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Once again, thank you, Frank. Thank you, Rod. And hey, Thank you guys and gals for downloading the show, sharing the posts on Facebook, retweeting the tweets, and just spreading the word about Monster Kid Radio. It means a lot to me to know that I've got you guys and gals out there having my back, enjoying the show that I put together. I enjoy producing the show so much, and to know that I've got you guys and gals along for the ride, and it just is gravy. How many more times am I going to say guys and gals? All right, let's stop. I mentioned our voicemail line. That's how you can get a hold of us about anything you've heard here on the show, either this episode or any of the previous 270 or so. You can also email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com. You can also get a hold of me through Facebook. Monster Kid Radio does have a Facebook page. If you're a user of Facebook and you haven't done so, please consider giving us a like. We also have a Facebook group that you can join and have conversations with other Monster Kid Radio listeners between episodes or even while you listen. Now, I do have a Twitter account. I don't do a heck of a lot with it. That might change in the future. And I actually had a suggestion several months ago, and I wonder if he even remembers this conversation. Listener Justin Giallo and I were chatting on Facebook, and he mentioned maybe doing some sort of community viewing thing where we all pick a movie and then all watch it at the same time and maybe meet up on Twitter or I guess Twitter would be where you would do it. And while we watch the movie, just chat with our fellow monster kids. So that's something I'm considering. I haven't really looked into how something like that would work. I know there'd be some infrastructure I need to figure out. Would it just be best to do it through Twitter? I don't know. Something else that's coming up in the future for Monster Kid Radio. I'm really excited about this. I mentioned it last time. Because we hit a certain milestone level over on our Patreon campaign, we are going to launch the monthly show featuring the... I guess it's triumphant return of my wife, Brenda, to regular podcasting. She and I are going to be doing a bonus show called Married with Monsters. Now, that will appear here on the Monster Kid radio feed, so you don't have to go anywhere else to get it. Just stay subscribed, however it is you subscribe to the show, and you'll get this bonus episode. It will probably come out on a weekend, and really, at this point, I'm aiming to have it out by this upcoming weekend. So stay tuned. That's coming because she's not as big a monster kid as I am. We don't really talk about classic monster movies, but I always try to weave some sort of monster kid content into whatever conversation we're having. So I'm not leaving the monster kids high and dry. I promise next week on monster kid radio. I've got a new voice to this podcast joining me to talk about the movie, the Navy versus the night monsters from 19. 66, starring Mamie Van Dorn and a handful of other people. There's never been a pattern to these Pacific vanishings. They seem to happen at random. Communication stopped. The crew's too busy to handle it to, to report. Handle what? Something that can catch up with the plane and snatch the people out of it. The Navy versus the Night Monsters. Starring Mamie Van Doren, who triggered earthly emotions in the midst of unearthly events. Anthony Isley, fighting fiendish, crawling things. From Antarctica, frozen for a million years, to a small naval outpost in the Pacific, comes a cargo of deviltry, devastation, death. A 
attacking bodies, destroying minds. Killing terror in a desperate, endless fight against the nameless horror. Those things are multiplying. There's no telling how fast. I wouldn't be surprised. We've got up to be hundreds, maybe even thousands. The whole island will be covered with them. So we'll talk about that movie with David Steigman. Now, David joined me for episode number five of the Dorado Films podcast over at doradofilms.libsyn.com, where he and I talked about the movie Island of the Doomed. I actually snuck that episode into the Monster Kid radio feed as well. Well, because he's a fan of monster movies, he's going to be joining me here to talk about this 1966 gem. Come back next week to find out. We might spoil a little bit of it. So if you haven't seen the movie yet, consider this your spoiler warning. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Wrong Planet. It appears on the EP Here Come the Delstroyers by the band The Delstroyers. They're based out of Seattle, Washington, and they tell me that over the next few months they'll be working on some new recordings. So check them out over on Facebook or at the Dell Destroyers. Dot com and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everybody next week when David Steigman and I talk about the Navy versus the Night Monsters. Ciao. Gentlemen, all I'm asking you to do now is to witness a demonstration of the possibility of movement within the fourth dimension. 